Welcome to On Your Terms with Aaron King, a show about living a life you truly love. Here's Aaron. Hey, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of On Your Terms. I'm Erin King, and today I'm so excited to bring you a absolute dynamo. This guy I first met in Orlando, Florida at the EXP Realty Convention. We had a fire conversation. He's an author. He's a speaker. He's a coach. He is the president of Success Magazine. And most importantly, he is a surfer and a diehard, fantastic dad, husband, fantastic human. Everyone welcome, please, to the show, Jarek Robbins. Jarek, how's it going, bud? Amazing. Thank you for having me. Always great to be here. Okay, so we had this conversation live, which was so much more fun than Zoom. We had the couch, we had the team, we had the makeup, the lights, the energy. It was convention vibes. And you threw down major fire nuggets. And I remember walking away and thinking, man, that episode is going to crush. And then we got the call. The audio didn't work. <laughs> so, so here we are in round two. And I have to say, you know, it's interesting um, talking to you the second time because I feel like I do know you a lot better. Um, and even more so from having done even more research into who's made you who you are. You know, I mean, you were featured in the magazine uh, in the last issue, and you said that everything you've ever done your entire life has prepared you for this current chapter with running these incredible coaching programs. And so obviously, Robbins, famous last name, not Mel Robbins, but Tony Robbins is your dad. Everyone probably knows that. What they don't know is that you actually had this incredibly inspiring backstory about your mother and your grandmother that I think our success listeners are just going to eat up the way that I did because, first of all, I'm so jealous. And secondly, what an incredible way to grow up with that feminine power back in a time where that wasn't necessarily the norm. So can you share a little bit about growing up with, with your powerhouse mom and grandmom? Totally, totally. Um, so what's interesting, if I rewind it, a lot of people knew my dad. Him and my mom were both going through my godfather's course, which was NLP back in the day. So my godfather is John Grinder. He co-created NLP. That, that's been a game-changing technology that's come about. The modern version of that in psychology is cognitive behavioral psychology. So how your cognition and thoughts and your behaviors mixed together create your reality. And so this thought process is they were around that way back in the early version of that coming to life. And, and they were 17 year old kids. Wow. And so I was in my mom's belly when she was learning how to help people break through their limiting beliefs and fears. And the way she did it was by teaching people how to break bricks with their bare hands. And so my dad taught people how to walk on fire. My mom taught people how to break bricks with their bare hands. Wow, like that's really cool. Um, something I was mentioning to you before, she was very aware of language, the power of language. When I was in fourth grade, my best friend's mom, who happened to be my history teacher, told my mom he should really be in special education because he's having trouble keeping up with the class. Mm. My mom stepped back and went, Whoa, language is powerful. Be very careful what you tell a child. Like, mm. let's use language to sculpt him into a super learner, not allow him to fall back and off track because he's different or doesn't keep pace with everyone else. Mm. And so my mom's, one of her superpowers used to be taking kids who got labeled special ed and put at the special seat or table or class. And she would help turn them into super learners. 
she would use NLP to help them understand their learning style, their learning modalities, their learning habits and patterns. And, and then she would take them and teach them how to become a super learner. And then those kids would go on to be straight A students, similar with myself. I went from a B and C and D student to a straight A student by learning how to learn. And so she helped me do that. She helped prepare me and help me teach me how to fall in love with learning. Uh, even the stuff I didn't like. I remember I used to take my math homework and shove it behind the couch and say it was done because I didn't like to do it because I sucked at it. <laughs> and she was like, honey, everyone is horrible in the beginning. You got to learn how to be horrible and then you got to learn how to be okay. And then you got to learn how to be great. And then eventually you learn how to be really amazing at it. You master it, but you go through the learning process. That's part of how you learn is you start by being horrible and then end by being amazing as long as you never stop, but keep going. Mm. And so she taught me this kind of stuff. And, and it was very beginning just through constant repetition of using the power of language and the power of visualization and the power of asking a child, watch this, who was the first person in your life and how old were you when someone asked, how do you want to live your ideal day-to-day -day life? Mm. How old were you when an adult sat down for the very first time and said, describe your perfect day to me? Where would you wake up? Where would you be? How would you feel? What would you do? Who'd be with you? When was the first time someone asked you that question? 10 mm. years old? Eight years old? Seven years old? For most people I talk to, they're like, well, that's the first time I've heard it. So I'm today old. And <laughs> same lot. Same. <laughs> I was like, is he gonna, I was like, is there a wrong answer? Because I'm pretty sure my answer is never. Is that the wrong answer? But I'm, I'm relieved to know that that's that's more common than we would think. It's the most common answer is I'm today old. This is the first time someone's asked me that. And I've actually thought about it. And so I always say I was privileged that my mom asked me that question when I was eight years old, nine wow. years old, 10 years wow. old, 12 years old. She wow. helped me design in my mind the life that I would dream of living. Mm. Now, I didn't have the resources to live the dream in my head at that time, but she was starting to prepare me with the vision so that by the time I was old enough and did have the resources, I was very clear on what I was going to do with those resources. I didn't have to mm. figure it out the wrong way but I could just put them straight to use on exactly what I know is true for me. And so that foundation in my belief system is something that every human deserves access to. My mom believed she didn't get it, so she wanted to provide it for me. And since I did get it, and I can tell you there's a big difference of what happens over 10, 20, 30 years of applying it, um, I'd love every human being to get that as soon as possible. That's part of what we do with success coach certification is give people those tools so that they can ask themselves the questions. But more importantly, looking at the next generation, they can ask their kids those questions. My mom got this stuff when she was 17 years old. And then when I showed up at 26, she was already using it with me effectively. Most wow. parents don't have it. Therefore, their kids definitely don't have it. And my thought is get these tools as fast as humanly possible to make sure your kids get a chance to get what you didn't have growing up. And wow. so I look at that as an ability to shape the future. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's one of my superhuman human women in my life was my mom. Um, her superpower was caring, caring it, about more than just herself. Okay. Can we just pause for a second? My jealousy is just seeping through the screen right now because that is, I can't imagine being immersed in that type of intentionality and that type of strategic, hyper self-aware living. You know, I mean, I, I grew up, my, my grandparents were Irish immigrants. 
everyone was just trying to scrape by. I mean, my my grandmother raised five kids. My grandfather was a contractor, odd jobs. And, you know, both, well, my grandfather particularly being Irish and an immigrant, you know, classic stereotype. He was a drinker. And my mom growing up was just, and my dad both were just classic children of alcoholic parents. And so let's just say communication, not their jam. And so growing up in a house where the feelings and, you know, it was more just like make shit happen, put your head down and don't be, just go, just go do the thing. We don't want to talk about it. And I remember whenever I would raise questions and it was always kind of this awkward silence, like we don't really go there. We don't really do that. So um, for people who maybe were raised a little more like me, where we didn't grow up in such a communication rich, such an open dialogue, wealthy environment. What do you think is is one of the things that you see like in your coaching programs um, with people like me where you're like, okay, this is the first issue we need to tackle in order to be able to step into this vibrant life that you're describing? Sure. I'll tell you this. It's never too late to have a perfect childhood. Mm, that's most beautiful. Most people don't realize that. Most people don't realize that. They think what I got is what I have and what I have is all I'll ever get. Mm -hmm. And the truth is when you understand the brain, you understand psychology, you understand how we learn, there's healing many times that needs to be done. If you think of levels, I always say your first mountain is what you get from life and your second mountain is what you give to life. A lot of people nowadays are in a place that they want to live on their second mountain. They want to be givers and take care of others and help others and be this totally abundant human who's just selfless and serving others and and using, uh, what is it called, GoFundMe to take care of causes they believe in and signing petitions online to change things that, you know, change.org. Like they, they want to be difference makers. And the God honest truth is they haven't healed what needs to be healed on their first mountain. So I'll give you another one. Problems don't cease to exist just because you choose to ignore them. And so for most people, they're ignoring what the work that needs to be done on their first mountain. And they're just instead letting it fester and build like a volcano until it kicks them straight in the face. I know this. I've watched young people who struggle immensely with relationships because they lose their temper over the most random shit. Mm -hmm. That's what needs to be done. I watch people who, who haven't figured out how to communicate because they shut down and go into a cave every time something gets tricky. That's healing that needs to be done. I've watched people who lose their temper or, or feel offended for people that aren't even in the same category, group, collection, clan, or, or community as them, but they lose their shit over feeling offended about another group. That's healing that needs to be done. Mm. And there's nothing wrong with caring about other people than yourself. Great, go help them. But don't yeah. let it, if, if you, I watch this from a biochemistry level, if you watch the cortisol shooting off in your blood, if you watch the fight or flight activation of your brain, there's no reason that needs to be happening in moments like that. Mm. Instead, it can be an observation of, wow, I don't like how that human's being treated and I'm going to choose to do something about it. If it's triggering you, meaning you lose access to the prefrontal cortex of your brain, your heartbeat shoots up over 100 beats a minute. You go into physical fight or flight and you're at the point like a saber-toothed tiger is going to eat you or you're going to fight for your life. If, if you're being triggered, there is work to be done internally, psychological work, emotional work, physical work. You can say spiritual work if you want to, but that's work to be done. I'll tell you the area to look for where the work that needs to be done is. 
Number one, the foundational piece for most of us usually happens between 13 to 28. And it's the feeling of, did you solidify between 13 to 28, the feeling of, I have enough. Mm-hmm. I have enough. I have enough to live the life I want to live. Can you answer affirmative to that question? Yes, I have enough to live the life I want to live. Now, I'll tell you, it's been said, the less you need to live an abundant life, the richer you are. The less you need, the less you need. If you need a jet and a Rolls Royce and a mansion to live an abundant life, well, that's where you're at. That's what you need. Otherwise, it ain't right for you. Um, after living in a village in Uganda, a teacher organic farming without electricity or toilets, I need very little to have a great life. I came home. I gave away everything in my closet. I gave away all my shoes except for two pairs, a dress pair and a sports pair. Um, I gave away all my stuff because I learned in that trip to Uganda, I didn't need anything. I just needed my health. I was told I had six days left to live and I came back and went, damn, if I can breathe easy and my heart works. I don't need a single thing more than that. Can we go back to that story for people that have not heard it? Because I read it in your first book. Or I, I don't know if it's your first book, but the book you wrote a couple of years ago, um, you mentioned that you kind of open up with this incredible story of yeah. they didn't think you were going to make it. Can you just share a little bit about that story with our listeners? Sure. So I took crazy. a trip around the world. I had my heart cracked open when I got to East Africa. It it just, it called to me. It felt like home. Like for some reason, I'm, I'm, not from Africa, as far as I know. I mean, depends on which history book you look at of where we all originated from. But sure. but it just called to me. Like there was something there, the people, the culture, the, the way people communicated with each other, the way people treated you, the way people stopped and talked to you. I was like, this feels very much like home. And what's interesting is in Africa, I mean, they have major metropolitan cities, like huge, huge major cities. And they have very, very rural villages still. And so I remember we were going out to a safari and I saw some of the villages and it just like imprinted itself in my brain. I saw people living in mud huts mm-hmm. with like thatch roofs and cooking inside on an open fire. And the hut is no more than five feet by five feet. And you have a family of four living in there on the ground, which is mud mm-hmm. half the year. And I was like, Wow. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Like I've never seen anything like that. How old were you? Um, 20, probably 20 years old. Okay. And, and so I saw that and I came home from that trip and I went back to University of San Diego, which is a small private Catholic school in San Diego for university. And I sat at the cafe and listened to people talk about TV shows and Ugg boots and Nordstrom's and all this stuff. And after about a day or two, I was like, mm-mm. I can't do this. This this is literally a waste of thought. I need mm-hmm. to go help people who need help right now. And so I went home and I searched, how do I help people in Africa? If you ever want a really funny situation, just Google, how do I help people in Africa? You see every charity you can imagine come up. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I don't want to donate money because I don't have any at this stage of my life. Like, how do I physically go help? Who do I partner with? How do I get there? Mm-hmm. And so I found an organization. Now it's called Restless Development. It used to be called Student Partnership Worldwide. And I said, I'm going to do this. And so I looked at the ways I could help. I could help with health initiatives. I could help with food initiatives. I could help with um, environmental initiatives. And I looked at all kinds of the categories. And I said, you know, I feel like food 
and environment calls to me. Because if you can fix the food system, you can feed everybody for life. And if you fix the environment where it's healthy to live in, man, now people can really live like you're not risking your life every day just by being there. And so I chose to help with the organic farming in the physical villages and in, in the part where people struggle most. Other friends that I've met over the years, they had chose to go help in the orphanages or go help in the hospitals. I was like, I'm going to go help in the farm, the farm and country here to see if I can help revive the land that's there and, and get them crops. And so I showed up, went through training with the government, learned how to do it. I was supposed to be there for six months, about three and a half months in, I got malaria. And I'm going to do a fun rewind here. I was born in Southern California. Uh, we believe that meditation and vegetable juice cures about everything. Um, <laughs> that was the first time in my life that I Agreed. told a doctor, hey, I'm going to meditate and drink my greens and I'll be That's fine right. in a week. And that doctor in Uganda looked me in the face and said, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and I said, well, that's because you're a non-believer. You have limiting beliefs. Watch mm. my empowering belief system heal me because I believe it and I can manifest my health, move out the way. He was like, my God, you're brainwashed. And I was like, no, I'm not. I believe it. It works. It's powerful. Watch. And so I, I held my ground. He held his. And and I learned the lesson. Um, you know, every approach works some of the time, but no approach works every time. Mm. And so the approach I was used to taking in the environment I grew up in was not the right approach for this situation. Mm. And so I learned that. Oops, wrong approach. And so at the rate it multiplied in my blood. The doctor's like, you believe in math, right? Like you, you don't argue with math. Now, like, I believe in math. He's like, okay, well, let's do math together. So he drew my blood. He put up, he did a parasite test and all this stuff. And he pulled, the math said I had 55,000 parasites per one red blood cell. Holy moly. Which is way too many, way too many. Every eight to 10 hours, all the eggs hatch, explode out of the cell, immediately dehydrate you and then go lay eggs in all the other cells and oh. eight hours they double. Oh so my 55, God. 55,000, 110,000, 220,000, like what? 400, like it goes boop, boop, boop. And he did the math and he says, based on the amount of blood cells the average human has, based on 55,000 parasites per one red blood cell, you've got about, and he went, blah, 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 blah. you got about six days. Wow. And I was like, six days to what? What? And he's like, six days till your body cannot sustain itself. And I remember being like, oh, my God. Wow. wow. That was not the twist I thought was about to happen. And so yeah. I, I came back. I called my mom. And I was like, mom, here's the deal. Here's where I'm at. What do I do? And well, hold on. I called my dad first. Called my dad. Got a hold of him. He was about to go to an event, do something. Got a hold of him. Like, dad, here's the deal. What do I do? And he said, son. Your mind is the most powerful tool on earth. If you believe your body will heal itself, it will. If you believe the medicine will heal you, it will. Whatever you believe, do it with total and absolute certainty and do it now. And I hung up the phone and it was the very first time in my life I thought that didn't fucking help. <laughs> like, wow. I, I mean, he didn't tell me what to wow. do. 
Yeah. You know, he was right. Your mind is the most powerful tool. And there's a whole section of of psychology and medical books of spontaneous healing where people have healed from things that there is no medical explanation for, but the the mind-body connection and spirit connection made miracles happen. So I'm like, he's right. That's just not what I needed to hear at that moment. Like I needed to hear, take the medicine or don't take it. Or I needed, I needed direction, not larger, broad truth. Like Mm-hmm. I needed mm-hmm. clear and specifics. So I was like, shit, I'll call my mom and see what happens. So I called my mom and her phone call ended with, God damn it. I didn't raise you for this many goddamn years for you to fly to some godforsaken country and kill yourself. Take the damn medicine. I'm on my way. And she hung up the phone. <laughs> I was like, oh shit. Well, oh my gosh. And I was oh like, that's kind of what I needed. I need a little yeah. more certainty on what to do. Yeah. So I took yeah. the medicine, had the worst 11 days of my life. Oh. Um, and then mom showed up in one of the, that was her first time out of the country. So wow. this is a fun one. So mom's first time out of the country, she decided she was going to come find me in the middle of Africa and bring me home safely. Uh-huh. Yeah. So she got on a plane she went and got all of her vaccinations in a day, which will make anyone feel like crap. So she got all of them at once. She got on a plane in LA, went from LA to London. She sprinted through the London airport to get to the next plane, which went from London to Cairo. In Cairo, they brought over a stair jet bridge instead of a ramp. And as she's coming down the stairs, she got to the bottom step. Her bag flipped around and pulled her forward and she landed on her hands and knees. No. Everyone on the jetway started clapping because they thought she was kissing the ground because she was excited they landed. Oh, yeah. These people are rude. So she got up, the little cart pulled up, drove her to, she barely made the next flight. On the flight from Cairo to Uganda, she fell asleep and woke up with some dude next to her grabbing her boob under his arm and she smacked him. I was like, golly, mom, like you just went through the Indiana Jones adventure to come find me. (laughs) But the best part was my grandma convinced her that people in Africa wear bright colors. And so when the van pulled up and she got out of it and the door opened, she was wearing neon yellow from head to toe. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I don't know if in the main cities they wear bright colors, but in the villages, bright colors don't quite exist. And so she was the brightest human who's ever entered that village <laughs> in the bird. history. Like Aww. she was neon yellow from head to toe. Oh my God. And I, the door opened. I had the biggest smile on my face. She's like, I'm going to kill you. I looked at her. I'm like, what are you wearing? She's like, your <laughs> grandmother told me they were bright colors here. So I dressed bright to fit in. And I was like, oh how God. do you think you did? And she looked around. She's like, I know. Shut up. Let's go. <laughs> oh, my gosh, Jarek. That is such an incredible story. I mean, I feel like we're, you're a great storyteller, by the way. I feel like I was with you every step of the way. And there's so much in that story that, I mean, I can't imagine that you got back on that return flight home with your mom and her neon colored outfits. And I can't imagine that your your life probably was before and after that moment. I mean, I can't imagine that anything would look the same through that lens. And I think that there's, it's so interesting because first of all, whether your, your mom is an NLP practitioner since the age of 17 and your dad's Tony Robbins, or whether you're my mom and dad, you're a little more, you know, average Joe, isn't it the classic response of like, your dad's like, walk it off. 
and your mom's like, let's do the thing the doctor says. Like, I think everyone can relate to that, that situation. But, but what I think is interesting is, is this kind of, it's sort of, you know, those are two binary options, right? Like dad says mind over matter. Mom says science, don't be stupid. And don't we find ourselves in these moments where we have to look beyond the binary, beyond the, the we have to get better at, at, at muddling through that gray and figuring out, yes, I was programmed a certain way, but here I find myself in the African jungle with six days to live. So what's it going to be? And so, and so what I want to know is, you know, for anyone listening that's had a near-death experience, um, it really, whether it's maybe surviving the pandemic for you felt like a near-death experience. Maybe for you, you had something dramatic like Jarek with this incredible, like wild survival story. Um, Funny enough, you know, Jarek, you live in Rincon in Puerto Rico. And bizarrely enough, I almost died in Rincon, Puerto Rico. Um, I was surfing out at Maria's Beach, which are, they, they used, Trace Palmas, they used to have like the surfing championships out there, as you know, back yeah. in the 1960s. And I was in way over my head and um, I got held under by this rogue wave. My board snapped. And I remember, I, I didn't know if I was swimming up or down. And I saw my brother on a swing set and all this stuff, right? Like, I was like, this is it. Like, oh my God, I'm going to drown. Like, and this, this salty Puerto Rican guy who was like 160, Chan with the flowing white hair, he picked me up in my bathing suit, put me on his board. My face is bleeding. He brings me in on his board. We're getting pounded on the head, pounded on the head. I remember lying on that beach. I'm covered in blood. My board is thing, but I'm alive. And have never looked at life the same. Again, like whether it's you sitting there at UCSD thinking, Uggs, Nordstrom, people are trying to fight to survive or me sitting there like, what am I going to do with this second chance? And so what do you think was one of the biggest lessons that you took away from from that experience? I mean, I mean, was there one thing that you were like, I'm never doing that again or I'm never going to miss this moment again? So I'll, I'll throw this out here. So I grew up prior to going to Africa, I grew up in high school watching MTV music videos. And so, you know, every week Carson Daly would jump on and there would be some display of some new video that would be the coolest visual representation of whatever the song was about they were bringing to life. My favorite video, and I know legally you're not supposed to do this, but I did it. Um, the video that I recorded onto a VHS cassette and played every morning when I'd get ready for school was called Hypnotized by Biggie Smalls and Puff. Sure, sure. It, it was one of the coolest videos. I mean, there was cars going forward, cars going backwards, motorcycles, helicopters, planes. Yeah. Planes. I remember that guys video. And gals. Like, yeah. it was a great video. And so I remember watching that video as the teenage me looking forward, thinking, man, if I could live like that one day, I really mm -hmm. made it in life. Like I have enough. I really did it. After taking that trip around the world and after living in the village, I came back and was like, I don't need a thing to have a great life. I just mm -hmm. need to have my health. Mm -hmm. And then I remember, I don't know if you've ever gone on Instagram and just seen someone that catches your eye. And like you see them and you take like a double take and then you're like, wow. And like you zoom in to figure out what's going on in the picture. You're just like, oh, my God. Like, of course. Look at this. Right. Human. Right. Of and course. 
I remember so many, I mean, this was probably only a couple of years ago that I was on Instagram, I was scrolling and this girl just caught my attention. I looked at her, I was like, wow, wow. And it, it just, it stunned me. Like I was literally stunned and I like zoomed in on the phone. I'm like, what is going on? Wow. Like she, she's, she, she literally stunned me and got a full wow out of me, just an observation of what was going on. Um, and, and we might need to blur this if it's not appropriate for people watching. Um, actually, it won't let me share. I'll just hold it up. All I can say but, is I'm very interested. Yeah. So so her name is Kayla. And I, I actually interviewed her. I, I went and found who this person was. I interviewed her to ask what the heck was going on. And she shared the most beautiful story. Um, but this is, I'll hold that up so you could see her. Wow. What's going wow. on? So this was af after her second open heart surgery to drain the fluid out of her heart after her second double lung transplant that she had gone through. And fast forward. So she was born with cystic fibrosis. They were told at some point her lungs will stop working and she'll just have to die. Mm. Her lungs stopped working. They rushed her to a hospital. They kept her alive on machines and ventilators until she got a match. Two in the morning, rushed her into the hospital room, cut her open, cracked her ribs open, took out the old lungs, put in a new lung, sewed her up, wakes up the next morning, and then they wait to see if the lungs are going to adapt to her body and if they're going to work. They work. She's got her second shot at life. She's got a new pair of lungs, luckily, thank you to a donor. She's living life. She goes out there. She plays soccer, does her things. Everything's going great. She falls in love with a boy. Meets a guy, falls in love, is very transparent from the beginning. I have cystic fibrosis. I've already had a double lung transplant. There's a chance some random day I have a seizure and just die. Mm. And there's nothing we can do about it. If you're going to choose to love me regardless, I'm grateful. He goes, his name is Brian. He said, absolutely. They fell in love. They got married. Fast forward one day down the road, all of a sudden she had a seizure. Her lung stopped working the second time. Mm. They rushed her to the hospital. They looked her over. They said she's already had one double lung transplant. It didn't work. The likelihood that the second double lung transplant will work is slim to none. So they said, your best bet, we can't help you. Your best bet is to go home and go on hospice and just kind of live out the rest of your days. And she went home with her husband. And her husband's one of those guys, like when he wants something, he doesn't quit. He doesn't give up. And she said, I didn't fight for this many years to give up now. So she said, let's, let's do it. And they wrote a hundred letters to a hundred hospitals saying, please help me. Mm. Four of them wrote back. One of them took her in UCLA. I think they deserve massive credit for what they did. Mm. UCLA brought her in, kept her alive on machines and waited until they could get a donor match. Two in the morning, she gets a donor match. They rush her in the surgery. They cut her open, crack her open, pull out the old lungs, put in the new ones, sew her up. That picture is from the day after the surgery. After they did the double lung transplant, her heart started to fill with fluid. So that was after the heart surgery they did with a tube coming out of her chest, draining the fluid out of her heart after her double lung transplant. Wow. And I looked at her, I interviewed her and her husband, and I was in tears in the interview. Mm. And he said, I was asking them, you know, what do you think the world needs more of? What do you, you know, what's the hardest thing you've ever gone through? What's the most beautiful thing you've ever done? And one of those questions, he said, 
one of the greatest days of my life was seeing the smile on my wife's face. And he said, I wish I could say that our wedding day had a bigger smile, but I would be lying. He said, the biggest smile I've ever seen on my wife's face was the day after her second double lung transplant. Mm. And he said, what happened is she started to wake up. She's on all kinds of medication for pain and surgery and stuff. And she she has a tube down her throat for breathing, so she can't speak. So she's asking for a board, and they're asking her, who are you? And she writes her name. How old are you? Writes her age. What year is it? Writes the year. And he said, all of a sudden, she scribbled something, and she looked up and had the biggest smile on her face. He said, I've ever seen on her my wife's face. And when she turned the board around, it said, I can breathe. Thank God. Said, I can breathe. Wow. And when I asked her about it, she says, that was the greatest feeling I've ever had in my entire life was the ability to breathe on my own free will. Mm. And that's incredible. After coming back from Africa, my thought was, man, if I just have good health, I've got more than enough to live the life I want to live. Yeah. After meeting her, I said, if I have a breath in my lungs, I've got way more than enough to live the life I want to live. What a story. What a story. How do you think that people listening to this can better live a life with that knowledge, that the breath in our lungs, the moments with the ones we love, being able to breathe and eat and sleep? These basics of this existence are so challenging for us to remember. I mean, we're in a world of Instagram. I mean, I I hate to admit, I thought you were going to say it was some hot babe or something that you saw scrolling through your newsfeed. And it's like, I think she qualifies. We're spending, she absolutely does. Amen to that. Amen to that. I think she qualifies. She's beyond. She's beyond. a smile on her face. Beyond. She's gorgeous. She's gorgeous. And I hate to, I hate to say, I thought it was going to be like some bikini clad, you know, whatever. And my point with bringing that up is we live in this world of these perfectly engineered images of the Puff Daddy video of the excess and beauty on Instagram in all of its forms. But usually, typically, the one that's most celebrated is, you know, buy this wellness thing. Here's your weight loss. Here's before and after all this stuff. How do you think that when we don't have the the village in Africa experience, we don't have the the near-death experience with you with your parasites, me with my surfing, or to be able to witness such an incredible story of survival and second chances and and forever love. I mean, these are powerful, beautiful stories, and you tell them so eloquently. But what would you say is like one way that the average bear, like the person who hasn't been to Africa, who hasn't almost died, who is sitting here thinking, gosh, you know, I just feel stressed out about these super small, basic things about my life. I feel like I'm drowning in my high-class problems, my champagne problems, which comparatively, you know, shouldn't be a big deal, but they still feel like a big deal in in our world, you know? Totally. I saw this picture and posted it this morning. I saw that. And I looked at that, and the most beautiful thing is it's a father in a building where the walls are blown out, but the bathtub is full. And the two kids have the biggest smile on their face. Mm -hmm. And so for people, I look at that as inspiration and say, I hope 
I hope I can bring that much joy to my son's life, regardless of whatever circumstance we're living through. Yeah. And so if those people want to know what to do, I hope they're able to bring that much joy into the people's lives around them, regardless of the circumstance they're living through. If you want to know what to do and make it actionable, choose to be a prism of praise, my friend says in a book he wrote. It's someone who brings light and in the prism, it reflects light in so many directions that it brings light everywhere it goes. I think one thing that's fascinating is most people want to be the sunshine on someone's day and bring light and love into their day. Sometimes you got to choose to be the moonlight in someone's darkest hour. Sometimes you got to choose to be for someone when they can't, it's all darkness to them. They can't see from where they're going and you choose to be the moonlight. You choose to show up and say, Hey, I got you. I see you. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you for where you are. You don't have to be anything different than what you are. You be you and I've got you. I see you. I hear you. I feel you. You're good. And so it's a choice. My dad says, trade your expectations for appreciation. Stop expecting life to be different than it is and start appreciating it for how it is. So there's lots of ways to get there, but all of it stems from work that needs to be done from 13 to 28. The foundation, I have enough. Because yeah. the psychology of what having enough means is what we've been dancing around. Yep. Is having enough luxury and overindulgence? Is having enough having breath in your lungs and the ability to breathe on your own free will? Mm -hmm. You get to decide what having enough is for you. And mm -hmm. I'll, I'll tell you again, the richest people in the world are the people who need the least to have enough in their life. Mm -hmm. The richest ones. They're the most abundant, the most alive, because they don't need any of it. They appreciate mm -hmm. all of it but they don't need it to have a yeah. great life. The next level up, if you go up, let's say 29 to 35, I'm loved enough. Mm. I'm loved enough. 29 to 35 is where many of us went through stages where we had to figure out how to create social bonds, how to create friendships, how to create community. This is our village, our clan, our community, our, our group, our peer group, our friendship circle, our peers. In this stage of life, if you've developed the right muscles, you feel very comfortable building a peer group, a friendship circle, a, a community. If you did not have a good patch of life at this time, then you struggle building community. You struggle building peer group. You struggle building this collaborative environment. Therefore, you will consistently question if you are loved enough or not. Mm. Am I loved enough? I don't know. I don't feel appreciated. I don't feel seen. I don't feel acknowledged by my peers. They tell me to shut up, go away, stop being annoying, get out of the way. Mm. Where anytime I build a peer group, someone else screws it up and breaks it apart. And so it's this stage of life. Yeah. What's interesting, if you want to do some history, which is fun, there's a book called The Fourth Turning, where they talk about generational archetypes and how each generation raised at different times in history forms different types of groups. Mm, interesting. And so at the stage of life you're in when certain environmental shifts happen in the world. So imagine if you were under the age of 10 years old and you grew up during the Great Depression or the World Wars, how were you brought up? You were brought up and told stuff like, get out of the way, move, be quiet, don't interrupt mm -hmm. us. We're trying to get stuff done. Yeah. Scarcity mindset. 
Mm-hmm. You become the silent generation. You're told to yep. shut up, get out of the way and don't say anything. Yep. Yep. That's what you're taught as a kid yep. during this stage of development. Um, it's not until I think the seventies and eighties where all of a sudden these marketing campaigns from corporations of the precious baby, like if you want to see something funny, go back to the fifties and look at a car seat. I mean, it's a bucket that hangs out the side of the car. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> that was a car oh, seat. Oh man. Here, place your kid outside the window. So hold on, cry, baby. You don't have to yeah. Like, oh my God. That's insane. But think of nowadays a car seat. Double yeah. tested by 47 different robot machines and smashed yeah. and by every angle. And this is the safest possible chair your kid could be in because we must protect the babies. Yeah. That's a totally different marketing campaign than stick it outside so you don't have to listen to your cry. <laughs> if you right. don't like the one you have, make another. Like, mm-hmm. that's a totally mm-hmm. different marketing campaign. I'm not saying one's better or worse. I'm just saying think of the psychology of the kid growing up when they're treated in those two different ways. Totally. And so we've grown up with a society, if you look at young adults, when they've gone through, let's say, that 28 to 35 range, the I am loved enough stage, what kind of environment has this generation of people just lived through when it comes to feeling loved enough? Mm -hmm. You said... Instagram, social media, swipe, hot or not, all these mm-hmm. things started to come up. We're now at the stage of life where we're trying to learn how to build social bonds and relationships. Technology is introduced that says instead of getting to know who the human is, instead of learning about their values and their beliefs and their vision, instead of learning how to understand what's important to them and what, what they're great at and what they suck at and who they are as a human, mm-hmm. we're just going to swipe. Yeah. That's yeah. how we decide who's a good person to have a relationship with or not. Mm. And so you got to think of what's happened during the stage of development when we're learning the skills of that specific need that needs to be met in the psychology of who we are and what's happening in society that's either hindering or reinforcing good behavior. Mm-hmm. And so right now, if you go ask young people, how do you know if you found someone that's a really good person to be in a relationship with? The answer is very different than the 80s or the 70s or the 60s or the 50s because there's a whole different set of technology. But it doesn't solve this developmental stage of feeling like I am enough. I'm accepted by my peer group. I'm appreciated for the value I bring to the table and I'm honored and acknowledged. Brene Brown says a place where where you belong, not just a place where you fit in. We live in a society where so many people constantly manipulate themselves to try to fit in instead of find their authentic self and find a place where they really belong. Yep. Yep. And so that's a developmental stage. Yeah. That's stage two. It's so, it's so well said, Jarek. And, you know, I have to say, I do a lot of work with high school girls. So women ages 14 to 18, which is the generation that's bearing the brunt of what you're describing. And one of the things that, look, I mean, I, I've worked in social media and digital my entire career. And recently, you know, my social media agency was acquired in January. And I'm so relieved because I don't know how I feel about it. Having been an early evangelist, I didn't understand how, none of us did, right? Like, how was it going to unfold? How was it going to impact society? How was it going to impact developmental stages, like the ones you're describing? And And one of the 
the, the components that we're trying to figure out how to do is how do we engineer enoughness when the scroll is endless? Like, how do we engineer a sense of enoughness when the scroll is endless? I don't have the answer to that, but I do know it will take a different mountain, a different set of work for these gals and guys growing up to be able to understand those connections and make those bonds. I mean, the digital conversation is one that really, truly keeps me up at night and does bring me extreme anxiety. Um, I don't have the answers to it, but I know it's super important that we are more intentional as parents, as peers, as mentors, that it's it's a conversation that just because we don't have the answers, we have to keep having it because it's not going anywhere. I mean, if anything, with the metaverse, it's just getting deeper and deeper. And maybe maybe the metaverse will will somehow go full circle and somehow create connection in a different realm that feels more like what it was. I mean, we don't know how it's going to play out. But one question I have for you, Jarek, you're so, I love your storytelling. You're so, um, you really take us in all these places, but I feel like I really want to understand more about you personally. And so one question that came to mind when you were talking about those two mountains in the beginning of the conversation where you said there's the mountain, the first mountain where the work happens to move to that second mountain where you can show up and serve. Yeah. For you, what was the hardest work that you had to do to move from, from your first mountain to this beautiful second mountain that you are shining your light in so many incredibly impactful ways? But like before you got to be this version of Jarek, what was what was like the hardest work you had to do to get here? All of it. All of it. I mean, I'm giving you little glimpses or little snapshots along the journey. Yeah. Finding finding what it meant to have enough. I mean, I grew up and, you know, my dad was dirt poor when, when they, the year before they had me as a child. So it was my mom. They lived in a little 400 square foot apartment. And my dad vouched that when my son was, if he were to have a kid, they would never grow up financially like he grew up, which was dirt poor. And so the year I was born, he went from making 38,000 a year to a million dollars a year and then wow. started growing since then. And I grew up with a very, um, bipolar is the wrong word, but a, a very drastically different on either side childhood. Like my dad lived in a castle and owned a helicopter and drove a Rolls Royce. And my mom and I lived in a, a two bedroom apartment or in the side room of a family's house of one of our family members or like I grew up with with a very dynamic, I guess would be the right word, situation. Depending on who I was with, yeah. life was very different than the other. And so within there, a big struggle for me was, you know, one, what does it mean to have enough? I saw my mom always struggle feeling like no matter how much she had, it was never enough. I saw my dad constantly driving for more. No matter how much he had, there was always the ability to go or get more or make more. Mm -hmm. And so the dynamic of not having enough existed on both sides in different ways. One was through lack. One was through chasing more abundance. And by looking at that dynamic, it created the question in my head of what does it mean to have enough? What does it mean to have enough? And like, is mm -hmm. enough is it never enough that you're supposed to always chase the next mountain or are you supposed to find peace with where you are or do you find peace, but continue to climb? I don't know. And so there was a lot of work to be done in there. Other peace mm -hmm. relationships. Um, if you look at I'm loved enough, 
that was something that my dad was vocal in his first marriage where he felt like he got his love from the audience, from the events, from the people he was helping because they'd be so loving towards him when he helped them transform their life. And so he found love in that place when he was young, when I was developing and growing. My mom, I was her source of love, which can be healthy or unhealthy, depending on, you know, if you're a single parent raising a kid or, or a separated parent raising a kid, um, you know, that that's not necessarily always the healthiest form of love to show a child. Like there, there should be a relationship where they see what love looks like in a relationship of sorts. Yeah. But I was her main source of love. She got it from me and nowhere else. And so therefore that dynamic needed work of like, wow. What does that look like? How yeah. how do you love another human? How do you have a great relationship? Um, my dad was struggling to figure that out. My mom was struggling to figure that out. I didn't quite have a role model there. So I had to go find role models and I had to go find research. I spent 15 years at this point studying and applying material on how to have lasting, healthy, loving relationships. Mm -hmm. um, I've gotten certified with Gottman University. I've gotten done tons of courses with Allison Armstrong. I've read dozens and dozens of books on the topics. I've taken plenty of courses and seminars on the topics. But that yeah. was a big area of, wow, I didn't grow up with this working perfectly around me in my life. And I didn't know how to do it. When I was yeah. younger, most of my relationships lasted about three months. Yeah, and I was like, they just don't last much longer than that. Something's off. I remember at EXP, you gave me some great relationship advice. And I really do want to dive into your expertise there. But before we go there, um, I can't imagine that dichotomy between your mom's the two bed, two bath or the two bed side room, sort of more humble every day of your mom. And then this castle. I mean, those are two such extreme environments as a child to go back and forth. And so when you were when you were in those environments going back and forth and you were trying to discover, like, what does enough look like? Did you look at the different did you look at how your mom or your dad, like their emotions, their vibe, their joy? Like, did you look and say, gosh, my mom lives in this space, but she seems to be feeling this level of happiness, whatever that looks like for her? Or, well, gosh, my dad's over here in this castle, but maybe he seems like, like, how did they seem in relation to their circumstances? And how did that help you figure out your definition? They both had immense joy and they both had immense stress, depending on wh what was going on in their world. Uh, you know, it's very joyful to be around your son and, the, and you, the kid you love and have a great life. And it's very stressful to not be able to afford to get a new car when your car breaks down. And it's very joyful to be able to have a party and take a, you know, a winter vacation to Aspen to go snowboarding or skiing. And it's very stressful when you find out that your CFO embezzled 700 grand and you're about to go bankrupt if you don't figure it out in 24 hours. Mm. And so both have joy and both have stress. And, and what it what came to life for me in that place is like, ah, the fairy tale people pain of like, oh, money solves everything. I'll make sure shit doesn't. Um, mm -hmm. And like, oh, the people are the happiest or the people with nothing that just really are joyful. I'm like, Sure as shit not. When you can't afford mm -hmm. food, it's hard to be fucking happy. Mm -hmm. um, like, it's like I, different, I, it's like different levels, different devils. Totally, totally. And I, I'm I got a taste of both sides to go, mm. I get it. One's not better or worse, but they're very different, very, very different. And so I looked at that 
the neat part with my dad was he's someone to me that represents possibilities. What's possible? I mean, he went from a dude at 17, kicked out on the street, living in the back of his car, living with my mom in a little 400 square foot apartment, washing their dishes in the bathtub to now, I mean, he's 62, has like 18 plus companies. They have $60 billion under management. They, I mean, he's a global icon in what he does. And he just shows the possibility of range of where you start versus where you're going and what's really possible if you keep striving to give more, to be more and to do more. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that represents possibility. Yeah. Go, wow. I mean, that's an amazing stretch business-wise and financially to do life-wise. And what's beautiful is how he's developed as a human over all those stages and ages. And, and you know, went from this hungry guy driven for love to this guy who's like, shit, I need to learn more about business because I keep screwing it up to a guy who mastered business, to a guy who mastered serving others, to a guy um, who, who's, who's become an amazing, amazing human. But when I say there's work that needs to be done, the one thing that's also cool is he's never stopped doing the work. Mm. I remember he called me probably seven, eight years ago now. And, and he called me and he's like, hey, I, I just wanted to apologize to you. I was like, for what? And he's like, you know, I'm really hard on you. I was like, oh, that's no news to anybody. Go on. And he's like, Mm. but I realized why. I said, why? He said, I've been doing this work at this 40 years of Zen conference I went to where they hook you up to biofeedback for a whole week. And every day you do eat deep inner work. And as you're doing the work with a psychologist and a coach, they're watching how your biology, your nervous system responds to the work, not what you say or what you think, but how your actual nervous system is responding to the work you're doing. And they're identifying triggers and doing the healing work on the triggers to wow. release them. Wow. So you can't bullshit or lie because it's how your heart rate, your blood pressure, it's how all your nervous system responds, not just wow. what you're saying. Give you an example. So he was reading these words to figure out where the triggers were. And one of the words was, I am demanding. And he said, I am demanding. His nervous system went off the chart. He's like, oh, that's bullshit. I'm not demanding. The <laughs> whole team in the room just fell over bawling, laughing. They're like, he doesn't think he's demanding. Is he fucking crazy? Like, oh my God. And he's like, I am? Really? No, bullshit. I just have high standards. And they're like, that's fucking demanding. And, and so it went back and forth. But it's that thought of self-discovery. Mm-hmm. how I view myself versus how I actually show up. Mm. And so he, even as of this year, last year, the year before, is always doing the work, always digging within, always looking inside and saying, hey, where's my place to develop? Where's my place to be better? Where's my place? And and it's so easy to look at someone like him, been doing it for 40 plus years and think, yeah, he's figured it all out. And he's like, no, that the ultimate mastery of anything is becoming an eternal student of it. That's mastery. Mastery is when you become an eternal student and you're always dedicated to learning and relearning and relearning and relearning. Mm -hmm. And so one of the most admirable things I look at from his, from my perspective at him is the mastery that he has in life is the eternal commitment to be a lifelong and never ending student of the things he focuses on. Hmm. And so in looking at that, he called me, he said, I apologize. And I said, for what? And he said, I'm hard on you. I said, no shit. And, and he said, but I figured out why. And I said, why is that? And he said, you're my blood. You are my DNA. You are part of me. 
I am insanely hard on myself. I demand the most from myself. No one on earth demands more from me than what I demand for myself every day. My standards for myself are insanely high. I never settle for anything less than my absolute best. And I push myself every day to make my best better than it was the day before. Mm. And he said, I just realized I see you as me. Therefore, I apply the same standard to you, which is radically unfair. And he said, I'm sorry about that. I would do better. And we both started bawling up and crying and talking to each other. And I was like, well, this is a hot mess. I didn't expect this morning. Well, well, how did but that feel, baby. Jarek? Yeah, how did that, how did that make you feel when he said that? Like, what was your first reaction? Yeah, tell us more. My first reaction was no shit. Um, <laughs> but then seriously I, like i hold that, high standards to you i was like no shit that's news do anything else yeah. you have to share this morning did it feel and, like something that you had wanted to hear or maybe i mean like how did that feel i mean that's that's so that's big, that's big language you're all about language right that's big language here's interesting yeah the thing you need most in life shows up the moment you no longer need it mm, god that's true mm. That's so true. And so what's interesting is I had been doing deep work for the previous two years where I finally got to a place that I had healed the wounds that were there. I had released the tension that once was. I had found my peace and calmness and centeredness. It, was, it does not trigger me in any way, shape, or form. Mm. I joke with it. I can be with it. I can sit with yeah. it. I can sit right in the middle of it, watch and feel every piece of it. And it does not trigger me in any way because I had done, I made my peace. Mm. So many months after I made my peace, he called to apologize. Gosh. And I said, I found my peace with this, but I found it on my own many months ago. And I said, but I thank you. I very much thank you for having this healing in yourself. I appreciate you having the courage to bring it up and I honor you for being willing to face your own stuff and bring it to the table. Mm. And I've done my work here. Yeah. I've made my peace with this months ago, but I only a few months ago. Yeah. And it's ironic that the thing you want most shows up the moment you no longer need it. That is the truth bomb of this whole conversation. What is so interesting to me is I think that what you were able to do to do that work, to find that peace, to, to tell yourself and get what you needed without that validation, admission, whatever. I mean, like you, you, you delivered to yourself what you needed internally without needing it to such a desperate degree externally. And what I want everyone listening right now to hear is, is the power of this story that, that waiting for that apology, holding on to that resentment. Now, I love that phrase, um, resentment's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. And, and for someone that's waiting for like that apology or that moment from their childhood or when maybe, you know, like, like, you know, the person didn't fly to Africa or the person didn't do whatever is that version for them. Hear what Jarek is saying here. I certainly am, which is like, we don't have to wait for that moment of validation. We can seek it out on our own, on our own terms. And then if that moment that you've been dreaming of that you think is going to make it all feel better, make it right, put the bandaid on. If you're waiting and waiting for that moment to come, Seek it out for yourself first. And if it does come, if that individual does the work, 
look at it as this beautiful bonus that you can honor that you don't need. It's so good, Jarek. Oh, it's so good. And How so much what's interesting, go ahead. Stacking go ahead. these together. Love yeah. one was yeah. I have enough. Level oh, yeah, two is I'm loved enough. If you want some work you can do around feeling like you're loved enough, I like the concept of a selfie. So take your phone, put it in selfie mode, and I want you to turn on your favorite loving, love-filled song, the song that makes you feel loving or loved. And I want you to look into your own eyes, and I want you to do three things. Identify what you appreciate about yourself. Identify what you acknowledge about yourself. Identify what you love about yourself. And every morning for 10 to 15 minutes, start by just playing and replaying that song and continue to look. Watch this. Check out your hand for a second and just look, look at your hand. But find something on your hand you've never noticed before. And just tell me when you found it. Just something, something you've never noticed before on your own hand. It's looking older. <laughs> but, but you no, I got it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Say, yeah. Okay. How long have you had this hand? Uh, 40 years. Got it. And you've never noticed that before? No. Okay. So just like that, put your phone in selfie mode, look okay. at your own face and notice something you've never noticed about yourself, your own face. But notice something that you appreciate about yourself that you've never noticed before. So just look at your own face and identify what's something in there you've never noticed before about yourself that you appreciate. That I about my face that I appreciate. Yeah. Um, now remember, the eyes are yeah. the windows to the soul. Yeah. So sometimes you got to look past what you're seeing and you got to look into your own soul and identify something in yourself that you appreciate. Yeah. Um, I would say I appreciate that I have a smile on my face despite there being plenty of things that I could not be smiling about right now. So I appreciate that. Now I'll look at something to appreciate. Something you acknowledge. Look deep in your own eyes and what's something about yourself you're choosing to acknowledge in this moment? Um, this exercise is very uncomfortable. Okay. It is, right? I'm very uncomfortable. I just started sweating and I do not get nervous. <laughs> so something that I... Acknowledge. Appreciate. Acknowledge. Um, so something you acknowledge about yourself. I acknowledge, acknowledge. it. I appreciate it. And I love it. I acknowledge that I have a rather large face and head, but I appreciate that there are big, smart brains in that big, large face and head. <laughs> there you go. We acknowledge it. We appreciate it. Look deep in your own eyes and identify what's something you deeply, deeply love about yourself. Mm. Another way to say it is what's something you honor about yourself. You love it. You honor it. I would say um, that I'm a deep feeler. I, I'm a, I feel all the feelings very deeply. And, yeah. you know, even though, you know, growing up, I was always labeled as sensitive because it wasn't really celebrated. I've learned to appreciate that it's actually my superpower. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. I love that. And How so, about you? What's, 
Oh, go ahead. So watch this. My question is, what would happen if we put 15 minutes on the timer once a morning for the next 90 days and every morning for 15 minutes, you just kept saying, here's something I appreciate. Here's something I acknowledge. Here's something I love. Here's something Mm. I appreciate. Here's something I acknowledge. Here's something I love. What happened is if you want a visual, the bucket starts to fill. And Mm. as the bucket fills and fills and fills and fills and fills, at some point, the bucket will start to overflow. And when you talk about the feeling of I am loved enough, when your bucket of love is overflowing, you will flow into everyone around you and only wish that they felt the same kind of abundance you do. Mm. Think of someone who's overflowing with love as they walk through the world, how they see other people, how they treat other people, how they communicate with other people, how they handle conflict when they're overflowing with love. They feel deeply appreciated, deeply acknowledged, deeply understood. They feel loved in all the right ways. And all they want to do is help other people feel that kind of love. Mm. That's what happens when this stage is complete. You get people walking around who are kind of like care bears with love beaming out of their chest. And every person that crosses paths with them, they just beam it right into that person. Yep. Yep. It doesn't mean they don't have rough days. It just means their bucket of love is full and overflowing. Well, third... So there's the first level, yeah. I, I, am, I have enough. There's a second level, I'm loved enough. There's a third level, 39 to 45, let's say. And at this stage, it's I am enough. I am enough. This is the social climbing, achievement, climbing the corporate ladder, building a business. This is, this is the stage of life where people try to prove them themselves that they can do all the things they think they're dreaming of. Mm. This is where they want to climb to the top of that mountain and put a pole and say, I I conquered the mountain. Mm -hmm. And so this is where people judge themselves based on performance. Yep. Can I perform? Can I show up and deliver results? Mm -hmm. And so what's funny is for eight years, I've been studying with a business mentor of mine as I entered this stage. And I was like, man, I need to learn how to grow businesses like he grew businesses. I need to learn the skills he's got. I mean, this dude bought and sold businesses, built corporations, built, you know, did, did old school corporate work, built a cable TV network, sold it, did, did real estate development and selling and buying, did a small business buying and flipping, you know, just cashed out a portfolio of small businesses for an 11 X multiple and got 110 million bucks cash before the pandemic. Wow. I'm like, I want to know what he knows. I want to do what he does. So for the last eight, eight and a half years, I've been mentored and studying with him uh, one-on-one and group in all different ways. And, and that was a big focus for me. And so I figured out how do I take my business and grow up by 143% over three years combined? How do I take other people's businesses and turn them around? We had a business in Louisiana. We applied this tools to, had a 50% growth in revenue during the pandemic, 171% growth in, in profitability and 195% growth in net profit. Um, I just got a text this morning from a client who said, we've sold out our entire inventory this year. Thank you for sticking with me and showing wow. me. Wow. Wow. We helped consultants come out and build a multi, multi-million dollar organization that we're running at 70 plus percent profitability every year with a small lean team. They always say, thank you. Without you, we wouldn't be able to do this. I'm like, nah, no, it's not me. I'm not special. I've just been trained by someone who knows this stuff and I've been able to replicate what I've learned. I've been able Mm. to apply it to myself and apply it to others. Mm -hmm. And so I'm in that stage. And what's funny is 
the thing you always wanted shows up the moment you no longer need it. I got to a place where I was working three days a week, four hours a day, multi-million dollar businesses. We run at 60, 70% profitability. Everything's dialed in. We have an amazing team that helps run it. Everything's systematized and organized. And then I get a call. You want to come be the president of success? I was like, you know how bad I wanted this 15 <laughs> years ago? And how? how much I don't want this right now in my life. Oh, man. And I, I said, no. My first response was, thank you, but no thank you. I'm dialed in. I'm happy. I'm good. My focus is on being a dad and being a husband, and that's it. And I, mm. I work three days a week. I surf the other days and spend time with my family. And I, I was there. And I went to that business mentor who's taught me for the last eight and a half years, do not get distracted, stay focused, say no to everything except for the most important things that move your business forward. And he said, you're going to want to do this one. Mm. Mm. And I said, you got to be shitting me. <laughs> and the dude who oh. me for eight years, do not get distracted. You're telling me to distract myself? Why? Why would I do that? I don't need yeah. this in my life right now. I'm freaking good. Why? Why? And he said, trust me for what you want to do and the difference you want to make in the world. He goes, let me tell you a phrase. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, you'll be able to do far more with this company than you ever will be able to do on your own. Mm. And here you are. <laughs> Come on. Really? Really? I was not pumped about that. But. Since I've been here, I see it. We're mm -hmm. able to do far more together than we ever could on our own. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges here is getting the team aligned to all work together and moving the mountain. Mm -hmm. the mountain together. If we can do that, we will be able to make an impact far beyond what any of us could do on our own. Mm -hmm. Someone asked me the other day, I'm a coach for myself. I do my own coaching. I've been doing it for years. Why would I come coach with you guys? And I said, I can only answer this in one way. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. If you want to multiply your impact far beyond anything you could do by yourself, come and join us. Mm -hmm. But only the people who are ready and deeply concerned with impact will do so. People who are only concerned with their own money and their own time, they're not ready yet. Yeah. We want yeah. the ones who are on their second mountain, the ones who know I have enough. I'm loved enough. I am enough. My job is to overflow into others and help them discover that. Uh, and that's the type of community we're building. Well, the the authenticity is is unable to be faked because I will tell you, I had my own podcast going just fine. I had my own business going just fine. And when your team approached me and said, hey, we should team up, they use that exact same phrase. Now I know where they got it from. It was from you. But I thought to myself, gosh, I wasn't the same as you. Like I'm saying no to everything that's not here. But then it's when people truly are invested in, they start with the self-help, but it flows into the other help. That, that acceptance and that celebration and that next level 
hunger is so contagious. It's irresistible. And you can't help but get on board. So I personally, I feel so grateful and so thankful that our paths came together. And because being a part of this community that you're building, I mean, everyone really does walk the walk. I mean, the cameras go off and you and I are having the same dialogue. I mean, we we finish an event and the conversations on Zoom are just as focused on the mission and the service. Um, so I think what's beautiful is similar to what you said about your dad earlier. You're like, you know, my dad, he he does the work. He keeps working, keeps searching. Well, here you are. You had this coach that's guiding you and helping you and empowering you to now launch this coaching program. So so you're walking the walk and the results are so evident. So people that are entrepreneurs, coaches, um, listen to this episode like, gosh, Jared is so plugged in. It's not an accident. He didn't just wake up just because he was born into this, you know, incredible family. He's showing up, he's doing the work and you can too. So I can't encourage anyone enough to plug into Jarek's social media, connect with us on all the socials on Success Magazine. We have our podcast, we have our, we have our magazine, we have these coaching programs. I mean, trust me, I had plenty on my plate and I dropped everything at the opportunity to team up with you guys because it is the real deal. And I feel the difference, not just in my own life, like you said, but it bubbles up. That abundance starts, and now you have excess. Now you have extra to share with those around you. And my clients have noticed, they have said things like, what are you doing? Um, and truthfully, that, that cultivation of abundance really is a team sport. And it's more fun to go together too. So I'm thankful to have met you and, and teamed up with you. And I'm gonna say, um, I'm gonna ask right now, can we do a second episode? Because your relationship Knowledge, I think, is a whole other episode that we need to dive in. Um, some of the advice you gave me at the EXP Reality Convention has already worked wonders with my husband. So thank you. And um, I think let's do a second episode if we can and really unpack some of that because you just have so much. I could talk to you all day, but I know you're busy and important. So <laughs> I could talk to you all day and I know you're busy and important. <laughs> well, Jarek, thank you so much. I mean, what what's the next step for our listeners today? I mean, I would say success coaching. Check it out. Connect with us. Engage with us. Um, Jarek's the real deal. And I just am so... It's funny. When we said we had to re-record this episode, I'm like, ah, oh, we had such a good episode already. Like, why did this happen? But everything happens for us, not to us. And this conversation, I believe, was meant to help so many people. So I'm thankful for the mistake of the audio not working. And I'm grateful for this time with you today. So thank you again. Thank you. They'll get better every time we do them. I mean, we're figuring this out. We'll we'll, we'll get better with age, kind of like <laughs> wine and cheese and wherever else ages well. We'll figure this out. Amen to that. I agree. Well, thank you again, Jarek. And I hope to see you in real life again very soon. Same. Thank you so much for investing your heart, your mind, of course, your time with me here today. And it is my deepest hope that you have gleaned at least a few new nuggets on how to better live a life that you love on your terms. You can subscribe to see all of my weekly episodes. And if you have time, you can send a screenshot of your review of the podcast to onyourterms at erinking.com and you'll be sent a free access pass to my digital persuasion masterclass where you'll learn how to attract attention, increase your influence, and sell smarter from behind the screen. I hope that you'll join me next week for another episode of On Your Terms and until then, 
let's connect on Instagram at mrs.aaron.king. Till next time, friends.